Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. We have your Bibles open in front of you today to Acts chapter 18. In this chapter, Luke concludes his narrative of Paul's second missionary journey. We pick up the story at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Let's just pause here and notice a few things. Corinth was at that time the Roman capital of Achaia, in the same way that Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. Whenever possible, Paul targeted cities that were important from a political or economic standpoint. He will preach wherever he is, but it cannot be denied that Paul appears to have prioritized certain locations over others. And we're going to hear about Paul's extended ministry in two strategic cities over the course of this chapter and the next. Paul spends 18 months in Corinth and then nearly two and a half years in the city of Ephesus. Those were regional hubs, and the apostle believed that if he built up churches in those cities— then they would naturally take the gospel to their surrounding towns and villages. And indeed, that seems to be what happened. So, back to our story. Paul is in Corinth, verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. There are a few things here we should probably remark upon. First of all, Luke makes mention of a decree by Claudius to expel Jews from Rome. This likely refers to an edict from around AD 49 or 50. Interestingly, the historian Suetonius said that this particular expulsion was the result of riots in Rome at the instigation of Christus, which many modern-day historians believe is a reference to Jesus Christ. It seems that there were riots in Rome among the Jews over the identity and significance of Christ. And in order to keep the peace, the Jews generally, or those directly involved in the riots, were expelled from the city. As a result of these events, Aquila and Priscilla came to Corinth. Now, we should probably also say a word or two about Paul the tent maker. We should begin by saying that Paul was not opposed to gospel workers earning their living from their preaching and teaching. On the contrary, he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That word honor actually means remuneration, tribute, payment, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So, obviously, Paul was in favor of a paid clergy. As John Owen said famously, preaching is no man's hobby. Generally speaking, pastoral ministry is a full-time concern, and it doesn't leave a lot of room for other industry. However, while Paul did record taking gifts and receiving support from certain churches, the church in Philippi obviously being prominent among those, he nevertheless often supported himself by being a tent maker. So what do we make of all that? I think what we would be wise to say 
is that pioneer preachers, pioneer missionaries, should probably have the ability to support themselves, at least for a time, by means of some sort of skill or trade. Paul tended to preach where there was no church to support him. He tended to leave once the church was established and stable. So Paul's example is probably an appropriate reference for pioneer workers. And then Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 5 is probably an appropriate reference for more established ministries. Lastly here, we should just notice that Paul is still holding to his general pattern. Verse 4 says that when he went into Corinth, he was initially to be found preaching in the synagogue. We pick up the story again in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. By the way, notice that pattern again. Believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now here we see again this very useful pattern, very interesting pattern. Paul goes into a city, and as a well-educated Jewish man, right, having studied at Hebrew Harvard at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, he's invited to bring the sermon at the next Sabbath meeting. And he does so. Based on one of the three readings, he would have preached a sermon showing how all the Old Testament anticipations and expectations landed gloriously and finally upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He preached the word about Christ. And people got saved. But of course, some people didn't. And some of them became very upset. So upset that eventually Paul was kicked out and barred from the Jewish synagogue. So he left and he took a bunch of people with him. In this case, he actually takes the lead pastor with him. It says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole family. Can you imagine that? A guest preacher comes to town, takes your pulpit for a few weeks, converts your pastor and half your church, and then leaves and takes everybody with him. That's what happened. No wonder there was a riot. Now, notice too that God tells Paul this time to weather the storm for a bit before moving on. We don't know whether Paul was thinking about leaving. We just know that God told him not to. God told him to keep preaching because he had many people in that city. That's an interesting phrase. Keep preaching, Brother Paul, until you have drawn out all of those I have destined for salvation. So Paul stayed and he kept preaching in a house church right next door to the synagogue he had half emptied. He preached for 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, 
the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So, having failed to indict Paul, they turn on poor Sosthenes, whom we presume became the new ruler of the synagogue after Crispus had been converted. And they beat him up in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention. Can you even visualize this? right? These these elders are losing their minds. They invited this well-educated rabbi fellow named Paul to guest preach at their church, and the brother went and converted the pastor and half the congregation, then left and took up shop in the house next door. And obviously, Sosthenes was powerless to woo back the people Paul had stolen, so they beat him up. You just need to visualize this stuff so that you can catch the flavor and some of the intensity of what's going on. Things are getting intense. We're beating people up now just to express our frustration with how things are going. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So the church being well-established, their right to exist, having been at least implicitly established by Gallio's failure to prosecute, Paul feels that now's a good time to move on. So he sets sail for Syria by way of Ephesus in Asia Minor. Paul is going on furlough, basically, and for some reason or another, he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, at least for the first part of the journey. It looks like they only go as far as Ephesus, whereupon Paul takes his leave and heads home to the sending church in Antioch. Verse 19. At Sincrae, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Luke adds this detail almost as an afterthought. Sincrae was the port from which Paul would have sailed uh, from Corinth. Apparently, before setting sail, Paul shaved his head as part of a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vows usually involve temporary abstinence from alcohol and cutting one's hair. This could be done as an act of thanksgiving for blessings already received or as a form of prayer seeking future blessings. It isn't clear here whether Paul is shaving his head to conclude the vow or to begin it. Either is possible and it probably doesn't matter. The point is that Paul is still a Jew and he is expressing himself to God in customary Jewish ways. Now, some people are troubled by that, but I don't think they need to be. Again, the issue is whether a person is doing these Jewish things in order to be saved, in order to earn a right standing with God. If not, and clearly I don't think that's the case here, then it is not theologically inappropriate for Paul to pray and thank God in typically Jewish ways. I, Howard Marshall, is helpful here. He says, Paul was simply expressing gratitude to God in the manner traditional at this time. His action is historically possible and theologically acceptable. I. Howard Marshall obviously assumes that Paul is doing the Nazarite vow to express thanks for a blessed missionary journey. At the conclusion of it, he 
completes his vow. That's how Marshall is seeing it, as opposed to a prayer for safe journeys home. Either way, I like what he says at the end. His action is historically possible. This was how Jews did it at the time and theologically acceptable. It doesn't in any way infringe on Paul's theology or the Jerusalem Council's decision. He's not doing this to earn favor or to get saved. He's just praying to God as Jews were wont to do. I see no reason to say any more than that. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. We should note here that again, just because Paul said back in verse 6 that he was going to the Gentiles now, that doesn't mean that Paul has changed strategies. Those statements have a local reference, not a universal reference. Paul went to the Jews first in each city, and then when kicked out of the synagogue, went to the Gentiles generally. So, here in Ephesus, he begins anew with the Jews. But this time, he's just passing through. He is headed home for furlough, but he does promise that one day soon, he will come back. Verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. These verses tell us about Paul's furlough, although not in great detail, and then about the start of his third missionary journey. After spending some time in Antioch at the home church, whether weeks or months, we don't really know, he sets off overland through Galatia and Phrygia, traveling north and then west, speaking at churches that he had now visited twice previously, while making his way generally back toward Ephesus. That's where Luke's attention goes next. He says, verse 24, Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What a great story that is. What an example that is to us. Here's a brother, Apollos, who had a partial grasp of the gospel. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, but only so far as the baptism of John. Presumably, he knew that the Messiah was at hand and that people needed to repent in order to prepare for God's new work of grace. And he obviously knew that Jesus fit into that somehow. Luke says that he was teaching accurately things about Jesus. Maybe he knew some of the healing stories. Maybe maybe knew about the miracles. Maybe, maybe he had even sat in on some of the teaching. We don't know. We know he was saying true stuff, but not enough true stuff. It would seem that he didn't understand the cross or didn't even know about the cross, what happened, what it meant, and he didn't know about the resurrection. He only talked about that after he had been mentored by Priscilla and Aquila. 
But here's what's interesting. What would we call today a person who preached about Jesus, his character, his sermons, his miracles, etc., without ever talking about the cross and the resurrection? What, what would we call that person? Almost certainly we would label them as a liberal or maybe even as a heretic. We, we, we'd, we'd definitely say he's a false teacher. Thank goodness Priscilla and Aquila did not have access to the internet. Robbed of that outrage amplifier, they actually developed a relationship with this brother and began to work with him towards a more accurate, biblical, and robust understanding of the gospel. Love what F.F. Bruce says here. How much better it is to give such private help to a preacher whose ministry is defective than to correct or denounce him publicly. Now, is there a place for public denunciation? Of course there is. But only after every effort has been made to correct and clarify those deficiencies. If Priscilla and Aquila had immediately denounced Apollos as a false teacher, they would have lost him forever as a friend and an ally in the gospel. Now, you've probably noticed that Luke shifts here in referring to this couple as Priscilla and Aquila with the wife's name first. We often wonder whether that is significant. Some think it is. Some think it means that she was the more outspoken or the more noble in terms of her birth. Others seem to think it means nothing at all. We should probably be careful here about asking this text to bear more theological weight than it is rated for. I think what can be safely said is that this couple worked as a team and both husband and wife played a very important role on that team. They mentored young people and they gave strong support to the church in Ephesus. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.